I'm reading today from Paul's letter to Philippians, chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about those things. Keep on doing the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. The God and the God of peace will be with you. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you, Mr. Warren. We, we wanted to check everyone's eyesight, and so we, we made that super small on purpose just to see. And then those that couldn't see it, uh, we know that you didn't remember it. And uh, anyway, it's, it's good to keep people on their toes, I think, sometimes. <clears throat> A few years back, researchers at the University of Kentucky stumbled upon psychology gold, they found the handwritten autobiographies of several dozen nuns as they were entering their orders and their convents from like 70 years earlier. This is back into the 1930s and 1940s. So what they did is they took those autobiographies and they categorized them by how happy the nuns appeared through their writing. And so they had four boxes, right, from most happy to least happy. Then what they were able to do is go interview those nuns, the ones that were still living, to find out their level of happiness and how satisfied and, and rejoicing and, and joyful they were about their lives. And I, I brought this up here because I didn't want to rely on uh, memory. I wanted to read this. Here's what they found. The happiest nuns lived 10 years longer than the least happy nuns. By age 80, the most happy group had lost only 25% of its population, whereas the least happy group had lost 60% of its population. 54% of the most happy nuns reached the age of 94, compared to only 15% of the least happy nuns. We're going through a series right now on what goes into an abundant life, what brings flourishing into our lives. And it would be no surprise to anyone that living a happy life begins with happiness, with joy, with positive emotion, right? This is where it starts. That's no surprise, but it's also sometimes a little depressing, right? Because what if I'm not happy, right? If, if our lives is the aggregate 
of all of the individual moments, then it makes sense that a happy life is built upon happy moments. But what if, what if this moment for me is not happy? One of the things that I found in some of the research that was helpful, at least to me, is to start with the fact and the realization that happiness is counter-evolutionary. Happiness does not help the human race survive. Neanderthals, who were content with their lot in life, did not survive as long as those who worried about what might happen tomorrow. Does that make sense? Right? You don't get far as a species by being happy. You get a whole lot further if you're constantly stressed, right? It's only on the individual basis that we realize this is a problem, right? So if your worry and your stress is a gift to the rest of us, we all say thank you. Thank you for your generosity. However, if you want that abundant life that Jesus said he came to give us, then it seems to me that we ought to at least take a look at this, right? We want to evolve as individuals. We probably don't care quite as much about how the species evolves a million years from now, correct? It'd be at least my thought. And so I thought I would take a look at this. Deepak Chopra tells the story of one time being invited, along with several other doctors and psychologists and social scientists, by the Dalai Lama to some, you know, event. And the Dalai Lama, and by the way, there's a great Netflix uh, documentary that has the Dalai Lama and Bishop Desmond Tutu, who, by the way, are buddies and is a, has a very interesting relationship. And it's on happiness, and it's about an hour or a two-hour watch, and it's worth you going and taking a look at it. It's fun to see these two old guys who come from very different places in life have both experienced horrible traumas in their lifetime and the joy that they bring to their relationship. It's worth going and finding and watching. The Dalai Lama challenged the doctors and scientists there to come up with an equation for happiness. And so they did, and I thought I would share it with you. This is the equation that they came up with for happiness. So I'll break it down just a little bit. It starts with this baseline that is the biggest bucket. 50% of our happiness comes from this baseline, and that comes from mostly our childhood, right? We know that infants, before they can speak, begin building connections and learning to trust people, right? They begin learning what human touch and affection feels like. And so these are things that happen before we can walk, before we can talk. But then, of course, we all know that the rest of our childhood is so influential in the rest of our lives, right? If, if we have parents who love for us and care for us and sacrificially give of themselves, or if we have parents that maybe don't as much or, or are absent or something like that. So I told you this is a sermon on happiness, but already I've mentioned something that's depressing, and this might also be depressing to you, because you think, are you telling me 50% of my joy in life is coming from something that I can't change? And the answer to that's no, because it's not what happened to you. It's not the history or the moments of your childhood. It's how you narrate that history to yourself in your inner monologue. So if you happen to be here last month and you heard some of the homework that I gave y'all on how to process your past, 
This is how you change that number. Now, what I gave you was just very rudimentary, go home and do it on your own kind of go for a walk out in the woods and reflect on your childhood kind of stuff. You may, and I would encourage everyone at some point in their lives, to spend some time with a counselor, right, or a therapist, and talk through some of these things. That's how you adjust this big bucket number, this baseline. The next one is your living conditions. And that mostly just comes down to your, your, how much money you make, your salary. And we know that the graphs on this, comparing income to contentment in life, all kind of do this, right? We know that when you don't have enough money to meet your needs, that, you, that you're struggling to pay your bills or put food on the table, that can really lower your happiness. But the difference in joy between a millionaire and billionaire is negligible. At some point, that curve flattens out. And Chopper tells the example of someone who may have won the lottery, right? And if they win the lottery for a minute, they're going to be super happy, as we all would be and we all would expect to be. But a year later, they will be back down to wherever that baseline was for them, and often it is lower. And the reason it's lower is because now they have begun to put their happiness all into this 10% bucket, which can never be full. They begin to identify their value and their joy in life based on their money. And I'm telling you, if that's where you put your happiness and joy, you will find yourself wanting. This brings us, of course, to our last big bucket. And that's what I want to talk about mostly today. And apologies to those running the cameras. I've been moving around a little bit. The base, I mean, not the baseline, but the behavior is what I want to talk to you a little bit about today for two reasons. I think scripture talks about this a whole lot. And I think the science that we now have from positive psychology can really help us out in ways that I believe back up and enforce the words from the New Testament. The first of these things is gratitude. The first of the things that you can do in order to increase your happiness today is approach the world with thankfulness, with gratitude. The scripture that we read was Paul at the end of the letter to his church in Philippi. And it ends with rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. I've said it. In fact, I think G, uh, Paul said rejoice something like 17 times in that letter. It's only four chapters long. So more than four times per chapter, he is saying the word joy or rejoice, which in Greek has the same root. All the time he's talking about how thankful he is of them, how much he loves them. You know how parents are not supposed to have a favorite child, but they all do? You know what I'm talking about, right? And if you're the favorite child, you probably don't know it. But if you're not the favorite child, you pr I'm just, everyone has a favorite child, of course, except me. I love all of my children absolutely equally. And if you're watching online, I love you guys very, very much. The point is, it looks as though Paul had a favorite church. If you read his letters to the other churches, they don't, they don't come across the way his letter to the church in Philippi does. But I thought I might start with his opening lines, what we just read, what Warren read to us, was from the closing lines of the letter. But in the very beginning of that letter, from Philippians chapter 1, he says this, 
I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. The way you approach the highs and lows of your life will affect the way you process it and will affect your joy or your depression or whatever happens to be going on right now. Everything that comes to you, good things and bad things, you can process with gratitude or with woe is me. And we've all been on both sides of that coin, right? So there's no judgment here, but just the awareness that when we reflect on even the worst things in our life, with a little bit of gratitude, with a little bit of thankfulness that I'm still here or, or that I managed that situation that was as bad as it could be, I managed it as well as could be expected. That affects how we get about day to day. So one of the things that Martin Seligman in the book Flourish that I showed y'all last week has his students do, and he, he talks about how much he loves teaching positive psychology because all of the homework is all of these things that you should be doing anyway. And so all of his students just give him really high marks for the class, right? You know, on Rate My Teacher and stuff like that because they're so happy. Like, if you do the work, if you do this stuff, you genuinely will have elevated mood. You will be in a better place. And so one of the things that he assigns his students, and they've done tests with hundreds, probably thousands of people over the last 40 years, is a gratitude visit. And it's this. <clears throat> Sit down and write a letter thanking someone that you can think about. When you think about who is someone that made a real positive impact in your life, and maybe the only thank you you gave them was just a handshake or just a in-the-moment kind of thing, and you've, you've felt... It would be great if I really was able to thank them in a way that was meaningful. So you sit down and write this letter, and he says it should be around 300 words, and don't mail it. You drive to their house, you call them first and say, hey, I got something to talk with you about, but you be really vague, because it's better if they're surprised. And then you drive to their house, and you read it, and they're going to interrupt you. And when they do, you say, I'd really like to read every word of this letter. And then after you read it, then you process how each other is feeling. I've told you all the story before that I did something very similar to that with my grandfather, whom I was so thankful for, and he was getting pretty close to the end of his life. And, and I had a professor, thank goodness for that professor, who when I told him I was going to write him a letter, he said, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Go tell him in person. He's still alive. Go do that. And it's one of the most transformative moments of my life, and I'm so glad that I did. So today's homework is going to be scattered out within the sermon. I'm going to give you three homework assignments, and I don't expect you to do all of them. The dirty secret is I don't expect anyone to do any of them. But if you do any of them, choose one that you really, really feel like this is something that I could do or should do. So, gratitude visit. The second thing that we can do, our behavior with which we can approach life to increase our joy in this moment is generosity. And, and this should be no surprise to anyone, right? Scripture throughout encourages us to be generous with the gifts that God has given us. The scripture that I pulled is from Proverbs. It says, one person gives freely, yet gains even more. Another one withholds unduly and comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. 
This kind of theology we find absolutely throughout Scripture. That we give not out of some kind of law or legalism, not out of some kind of if you don't, God is going to punish you, but we give because it changes who we are. At a fundamental level, when we are generous, it raises our own joy. And the more we give, the happier we are. And the longer we give, the longer we stay happy. And suddenly, this builds a beautiful life, don't you see? We ask for money here at the church every week, and I don't mind doing so because we have light bills to pay, and, and our staff like their salaries, and all of those things are important things, but I don't ever want you to feel like that's why you're giving, and if you are, then don't. Give somewhere else. Give because it's going to help you grow into the person that God made you be, right? Until you can say with confidence, I love God with my whole heart, strength, and mind, and I love my neighbor as yourself, then we have work to do. And generosity is a huge piece of that. Generosity, Seligman says, is the single most effective thing that he has his students do to raise joy. Finding some way to be generous. This is why I automate my giving. I hate paying bills. I hate sitting down the first of the month. I hate writing checks. I hate getting online and filling out those long forms to pay online. And so I do it once, and it's automated. And I see it come out every month on my statement. I usually get an email. And, I, and you know what? Here you go. This is not the reason you do it. But you get a shot of dopamine when you get that email, don't you? <laughs> I'm happy that I was able to support the church and a few other things. But that's not where the real shot of dopamine comes. The real shot comes when you give to someone who doesn't expect it. And so your second homework assignment is to find a random act of kindness to do this week. If you could do one a day for five days and then reflect on that, if you're willing, and I don't want you to do it for this reason, but if you're willing to share that with someone or post it on Facebook or something like that, hey, Here's what I've done this week as, as a homework assignment because my pastor hates us and he wants us to do homework not on Sundays. And then just reflect on how you feel at the end of the week and how each of those individual moments made you feel in the moment and how reflecting on them later at the end of the week makes you feel right now. And just some examples. You're in the drive-thru, pay for the car behind you right? You're never going to meet them. You won't see their face. You won't get to experience their reaction, but do that anyway and see how you feel. How about if you visit a local business, give them a review on Google, right? They probably won't know it's you. They might not ever even read it. Hold the door for someone. You know, there's so many little things that you can do that really don't cost anything, but really, really help others. And that will raise your joy in this moment today. So gratitude, generosity, and the last one might shock you, it's exercise. And this one's complicated because I think exercise is throughout Scripture, but it's hardly ever mentioned. You know what I mean? It's like the fish who doesn't know what water is. You know what I'm getting at? Because 2,000 years ago and further back, when our Scriptures were written, exercise wasn't a thing because exercise happened every day in every single aspect of life, right? If you travel somewhere, how are you going to get there? You're going to walk. 
I don't know about y'all, but I track my steps, right? I got this watch that counts my steps on good days, and my goal is 10,000 steps a day, and I normally don't hit it, and so I'm trying to average, you know, in the upper 9,000s, right? Imagine, though, if I didn't have a car and I walked to work every day, right? Or I walked to the grocery store, or I walked to pick up my kids, or everywhere I went, I walked. 10,000 steps would suddenly be like nothing. We'd be hitting 20, 30, 40,000 steps a day every day. Think about what that does to your body. That's just, that's just getting around. Think about the work. I don't know about y'all, but my work happens at a desk, most of it. If you've been in my office, you see that I put a standing desk in there just so that I wouldn't sit down all day long because I don't want to be lethargic, but also if I sit down over a computer, I don't know about y'all, but like I carry stress up here in my shoulders and I just get all knotted up, right, from doing this all day. Imagine, though, living in a place and time where if you wanted to eat, you probably had to dig a hole for it. Or you had to go out there with a dull knife and cut it or something like that. Or you had to hunt it. You get what I'm getting at? I've told you all stories of going to CFAT before. One time I was at CFAT. It's a mission organization over in East Alabama that does work all around the world. And they have this summer camp, and I was there one summer with, with some kids. And, and our job for that day was to go cut the grass. And they've got, you know, this huge pasture out there, and we were going to go cut the grass. Only we did it with no lawnmowers. We all had short-handled sickles. And it was the summertime. And you go out there, you grab a bundle, you cut it, you lay it down, and you keep going. And at first I thought, well, this is so inefficient. What an absolute waste of time. But as I did it, I realized a couple of things. First of all, I was having a good time. I was out there. I was good friends with the uh, campus director. And so he and I were working alongside each other. And we were getting to talk. We were getting to breathe fresh air. We were getting to use our bodies the way they were meant to be used. And we had a genuine good time. And at that moment, I realized something about myself that I think I've inherited from my father. I would say that my dad is a workaholic. He loves to work. I used to hate it because on Saturdays we would want to play with our friends and instead we would work. And if, God forbid, our friends came over to the house, then they would work too. So no one ever wanted to come to my house because we always had a chore to do, right, or some kind of something to do. But I realized in that moment how much I really enjoyed that and how much I connect with God doing sometimes just labor, right? There's a lot of joy. This is why grown men will go out and cut the grass, and then they will sit on their front porch and look at that lawn. Yeah? You know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Because when you do something like that, then you have a job that's done, and you get to sit back and puff out your chest, and man, this feels so good. You know, when you got a ditch to dig, you don't have to think about it. There's no relational problems that you have to work through. There's no managerial problems that you have to work through. You don't have to do any math. You just dig the ditch. And when the ditch is dug, you get to sit back and go, look at that ditch. I did that right there. It's something about working with your hands, at least for me, that I think brings me closer to God. And this is absolutely throughout the Bible. Nothing happened in the pages of Scripture that did not happen through some kind of physical exercise, right? I read a book a while back called Spark by John Rady, and I wanted to read a quote from it. It connects 
brain chemistry to exercise, and this is near the intro, it's in the beginning. It says, what I aim to do here is to deliver in plain English the inspiring science connecting exercise and the brain, and to demonstrate how it plays out in the lives of real people. I want to cement the idea that exercise has a profound impact on cognitive abilities and mental health. It's simply one of the best treatments we have for most psychiatric problems. That's a great book, by the way. I bought it um, electronically, so it's on my, on my computer, but so good talking about all the ways when you exercise, it affects your brain from memory to cognitive function to intelligence to dementia to mood to depression. And y'all know this. If you're ever really upset, stressed about something, you go for a walk, right? Or go for a jog or go lift or do something like that. And, and afterwards, you will feel better, and you will notice it. It is just a simple fact. There's a danger in preaching a sermon like I have preached and prepping it this week. If you tell God you're going to preach a sermon on rejoicing always, God will give you the opportunity to embody that. And I rolled into the office Monday morning on absolute cloud nine. I told y'all last week that we were having a new leadership structure to our meetings. We had our first meeting last Sunday afternoon, and I think it just absolutely crushed. It was so good. I was so proud of the work that the committees went and did. I was so happy with the results, and we got a lot of positive feedback. It just felt so inspiring to see 60 or 70 people in a room take up this mantle, this charge to be God's kingdom, right, and go figure out ways to put it to work. So I got up early Monday morning. I went ahead and spent about an hour on this outline for this sermon today, and it's a good thing I did because when I got here, everything hit the fan, right? I got one of those phone calls that no one ever wants to get, and it consumed every day of my week, Monday to Thursday. And then we had a funeral midweek, right? And it was an absolutely beautiful funeral, but a funeral takes a lot of time, and it takes a lot of emotion out of you. And then, and for roughly the past two weeks, my son has been complaining of abdominal pain, so yesterday we went to the ER, and shocking, appendicitis. So he's there right now and is going to be there for a couple of more days. And it's not, I, here you go. I don't believe in karma, usually. I don't go looking for devils behind every bush that are, that are causing the problems in my life. I do that pretty well on my own. But I have spent a lot of time reflecting this week on what it looks like to rejoice always, even when things don't go really well. And I will be honest with y'all and tell y'all some of the moments this week I did that really well and some of the moments this week I could use some improvement on. And my invitation to all of you is to reflect on your own lives and whatever specific circumstances you have going on in your life today with gratitude, with generosity, and then, friends, your third homework assignment is just go do something, right? Go, go lift, go walk, go do spin class, go do yoga, go hike, go something this week. And as you do, reflect on the goodness and the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks that you want what's best for us. We give you thanks that you sent Jesus Christ to give us 
that life abundantly, right? We give you thanks for people who have put in real research, modern kinds of research, into things that support and build upon what you have given us in your word. So God, my prayer is today that you help us to embody the things that we can change, the behaviors that we can be a part of, that make our lives better and make the world a more just, beautiful place as you have called us to do. Gracious God, be with us today and be with Alabaster First United Methodist Church. I ask that you bless us so that we might be a blessing to the nations. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's children said, right on.